213 Things About Me, a podcast about thinking, living and dying, from an autistic point of view. Trigger warning. This podcast contains opinions and ingredients which might induce disquiet in the minds of some listeners. Episode 7. Biography of a Lost Life. 90. I feel continually anxious and worried. People say that I seem to feel guilty all the time. 91. I arrange things in order based on the colour spectrum and I'm disturbed when children or adults don't put things back in their proper place. Rose had come to the inescapable conclusion she had no logical purpose to carry on living. Harsh but true. For those of you unable to comprehend her line of reasoning, this might help. I feel like my every thought explodes into a million untraceable directions, making millions of connections. Everything seems filled with meaning, but I can make nothing of it. There's no conclusions, just thoughts and memories, like a Beckett play that never stops. This means something. Hold on to it. But yet nothing. Bring that back. Bring back that boot, that noose, that boy. Bring back the mention of tomorrow and yesterday. Bring it all back. It's important. It's significant. Why? I don't know. It just is. Just keep talking and waiting and waiting and talking and everything will become clear to you. Godo will arrive and it will all be clear There is only the waiting, the talking, the struggle and the noose. The fact is, I would always be alone. I'd never have anything resembling a career. Never get married or have children. I don't feel like I have any kind of life that's worth living. And that's why I'm here now. A dead woman talking. I'd never be a musician, a teacher, a mother or a wife. I'd just be the witch at the end of the lane. That eccentric, weird old lady living in crappy housing who chose a different kind of life. So there you have it. It's cold and it's hard. But if someone lives with this kind of thought, it shouldn't be a surprise when it results in drastic action. The saddest thing is it could be averted if the world took a few small steps to understand that not everyone thinks and feels the same way. You kind of know this in the abstract, but the thing is it's really hard to properly appreciate somebody thinking in a different way from yourself. Our beliefs are ingrained from a young age, so the best we can hope for is a kind of theoretical understanding. What I mean by this is a admitting that you have no idea what someone else feels or thinks and b from that position attempt to accept this and act appropriately. 
this is extremely difficult to do in reality. A recent study conducted in Sweden discovered autistic women are more likely to attempt suicide than neurotypical people. Autistic women were also more likely to have suicidal thoughts or to attempt suicide compared with autistic men. The study examined suicide data, including attempts and people who died by suicide, in more than 55,000 people on the spectrum between 1987 and 2013. These participants were then compared to a control group of neurotypical people. The results showed autistic people as four times more likely to attempt suicide compared to the neurotypical population and eight times more likely to die by suicide. For autistic women who also have Attention Deficit Disorder, ADHD, their risk for attempting suicide nearly doubles. Approximately one in five autistic women with ADHD attempted suicide. This indicates a risk of suicide ten times higher than women in the general population. For your information, Rose had ADHD. I dislike the word suicide. It's a loaded term and implies failure on the part of the participant, when in fact, as the objective is to die, the act is successful, and the failure would be societies in not presenting a world worth living in. I prefer the term taking one's own life. After all, it is your life, and you have no obligation to continue to live it until biology dictates it's the end. We all die, but the matter that constitutes us continues to exist, as Rose herself said. Being dead, on the other hand, that's the perfect state for me. Reduced to the component parts of my being, tiny, tiny, tiny atomic particles, zooming around the universe for all time. It's ideal. Perhaps a lockdown has presented people with an opportunity to slightly understand the world of neurodiversity. To be unable to access a world you know is there, but cannot get at, and when you do interact, the world feels distorted and wrong. I see regular people complaining about this dislocated feeling a lot. Some of us live with this feeling 24-7. So this is as far as the story goes. All stories have to come to an end, and this one is finished. I didn't use all of Rose's 213 things. I selected those which best illustrated her thoughts. Rose is gone and there's a small bundle of people who she affected and who remember her, though less frequently, as time passes. I found a document amongst her papers. It's not a note, and it was never sent to anyone, but it was written very shortly before her death. She called it Biography of a Lost Life, and it's written in the third person, by her, about her. So I'm going to read it. From the outset, Rosemary Wilkins was precocious. Her mother reports she began to teach herself to read at the age of two and a half. Rose, as she was called by friends, family and all other associations, would often recall doing maths in their house when she could have been no more than four. Despite her rapid development, the possibility of going to school early or getting educational support required funds the poor family couldn't supply. It's unclear, and there are no records to validate the income of the family in these years, but it is rumoured that there might have been enough money if her father had not squandered the family's resources on alcohol and other revelries. 
they moved to a small rural town and it was there Rose spent her formative years, playing in the small tract of trees separating back gardens from the wheat fields. She invariably described it as the woods. She knew every place in town where there might be a stream to play in, a rock to sit on or a tree to climb for a better view of her home. Sullen and isolated in social settings, she had a difficult time with her schoolmates and teachers. She had only a handful of times spent with playmates. She was possessive of her things and couldn't even get on with her sister, always insistent that crayons and toys were returned to their proper place and in the proper order, and would get cross if that wasn't the case. Her mother would often say to guests to explain Rose's odd behaviour that she was eight going on 80. When homework and obligations were introduced, she began to show more and more signs of failure. The school was at a loss. Her scores on tests were the highest in the class, but she couldn't manage to bring a permission slip home, let alone the homework given to her by her teachers. She became fixated on music. When visiting with her grandparents on either side, she would play the same thing over and over, unwittingly driving her grandparents mad, but teaching herself solfeggio and ultimately perfect pitch. She also had a fixation with religion, despite her parents' atheism, which drove her mother to distraction. She insisted on going to the next town, to a Seventh-day Adventist church, where they were the type to bellow from the pulpit about damnation and redemption. Rose enjoyed telling the story of her experience. Every Sunday they would have an altar call. And if you don't know what an altar call is, it's when the preacher encourages people who are not Christian to come up to the altar and commit their life to Jesus. And every Sunday this would be prefaced with a gruesome depiction of the hell that would await you if you weren't saved. They said, Jesus will enter your heart. So every Sunday I would go up. But every Sunday I knew I hadn't felt it. I knew Jesus hadn't entered my heart. After I don't know how many times of my mother picking me up in tears, she finally suggested, maybe you should just stay home and read the Bible. So that's just what she did. She was not a voracious reader. Disinterested in children's novels, she occasionally fixated on something thick. She was interested in Frances Hodgson Burnett in particular, but only for a moment, and then she would be back to the woods or in her room singing and learning whatever music was available to her. Her parents' inevitable divorce came after already having been separated for two years. Rose's ability to function with others and in the classroom swiftly deteriorated from its already scant state and she became the target for aggressive bullying. Three weeks before her death, Rose reported to friends she'd been crying all weekend. Unfortunately, she was new to this community and they had no idea of her usual uncommunicative demeanour. They had no idea what a desperate plea for help what an effort it must have taken for her to confess anything was wrong at all. And after a couple of days, her friends, neighbours and family supposed the moment must have passed. But it hadn't. 
it deepened. Perhaps tellingly in those last weeks, she spoke words of consolation to others on the brink, hinting to them she too was close to an edge. They were gratifyingly comforted by her words, perhaps because she knew only too well how near to expiration she lay. And they all discovered in her death from where her newfound wisdom had arisen, but only heard the cry for help after it had gone. And then a voice came to her, and it offered her the cessation of it all, and she took it up, hungry in her hopelessness. Her last efforts, a last gasp for breath, a last attempt to live, but the effort was not enough. She called on death, and it appeared, not in the form of a robed figure with a scythe, but in the form of words. They beckoned like a morphine drip, slowly dissolving the world around her and encouraging her to leave all existence behind. And with those opiated words, she passed quietly into that good night. 92. If I can't be alone, I will create solitude by withdrawing into an obsession. 93. I have many acquaintances, but no close friends. 94. I can't consider anything finished unless it is perfect, and nothing is perfect. 95. I genuinely enjoyed making this list. My friend's death was a tragedy and it should never have happened. I wish she had sought some advice and help. If anyone listening to this is feeling suicidal, I urge you to talk with someone about your feelings and not to act on them. It may feel like talking will not help, but it does. I know I have done exactly that. The Voice of Rose, performed by Rosa Hoskins. Narrated, written and produced by Richard Butchins. Edited and mixed by Patrick Nill. Original music by Kate Warren. This podcast was commissioned by Disability Arts Online, a platform led by disabled people to advance disability arts and culture, with additional support from Unlimited. If you have found this podcast interesting, please subscribe or comment. We can also be found on Twitter.